0: Be the right club. Be the right club today. Johnny, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most.
1: Better than most! Expect anything different? Another bonus episode here of the No Laying Up podcast. I normally, under normal circumstances, I hate doing a phone interview with somebody that I don't know. Uh, Of course, we are under extremely unique circumstances and got in touch with Hal Sutton. You know, I, I like to at least get to know guys before having an interview, but he was nice enough to spend an hour on the phone chatting about his career, a lot of things, and he brought the heat. He brings a lot of really interesting perspective on how the game of golf has changed You know, some of the decisions he made in 2004 Ryder Cup, he takes you all through Sawgrass, Be the Right Club today. We do the whole thing. So uh, fantastic look. I love having some of the uh, older guys on as I've uh, has been well documented on here. Um, If you are looking to multitask while you do listen to Hal Sutton talk about literally trademarking the phrase Be the Right Club today, uh, our friends at Odyssey Golf want you to know about Toulon Garage. So this is the online putting uh, putter configurator For Toulon's line of milled putters, you can choose from nine different heads. you got different finishes, stamping options, and paint fill colors. I know there's a lot of you out there that are the junkies for all the customization and things like that. If you're not familiar with Toulon, it's the fastest-growing milled putter brand on tour. It's in the bags of guys like Kevin Na, who, if you can find me somebody who rolls it better than Kevin Na, I am listening. Uh, He set a record for the most feet of putts ever made uh, with his Toulon last year. I believe that was at Colonial at the Schwab. Uh, it's in the bags of Maverick McNeely, Francesco Molinari, and a ton others. So inside, inside the Toulon garage, you can pick a variety of different hosel styles, sight lines, and sole plate weights to customize your flat stick. If you guys have never messed around with sole plate weights and, and the weighting of putters, I be careful doing it. Uh, once you open that uh, door, there's no turning back. But once I learned about weights, swing weights, and all that stuff. Uh, I started to realize how much actually goes into your putter. And if you've been just gaming the same putter for a long period of time, I promise you, unless you got fit for it, I promise you it's wrong. Like It's just flat-out wrong for you. So I, I suggest spending some time with these configuration tools. If you're stuck inside and you're off the course, it is a fun, creative outlet at minimum. So visit odysseygolf.com slash Toulon Garage to start designing. That's tulon, T-O-U-L-O-N. T-O-L-O-N. Go to odysseygolf.com slash Toulon Garage to start designing your custom-milled putter today. Let's get to Hal Sutton. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Thrilled to have uh, continued success here during the quarantine period and tracking down some people that we've wanted to have on for a long time. And uh, that uh, that gentleman today joining is none other than uh, 1983 PGA champion and two-time players championship uh, winner, Mr. Hal Sutton. Thank you for joining.
0: Thanks for having me. Look forward to this conversation.
1: Yeah, well, usually I'd like to start with background, but uh, considering these strange times, I kind of want to hear more about what you've got currently going on in your life now and kind of w- this weird quarantine period, how you're, uh, how you're passing your time.
0: I don't really have much going on. I'm just uh, hanging out, hitting a few golf balls, and we had a grandbaby yesterday, so that was exciting. We, it was our second grandbaby, so just living life.
1: Well, congratulations on that. But I, I got to admit, uh, you know, we're, I saw your your tweet this week that you're looking at, at starting your own podcast. We don't need another competitor in this space. Uh, I, I don't know exactly uh, where you're getting this idea from.
0: Oh, you're not afraid of me, are
1: you? <laughs> I'm, ter- I'm terrified <laughs> of you. Are you kidding me? In many ways. <laughs>
0: well, you know what I think? I think we need more opinions in the game. You know, I've only been playing this game for Forty-three years, so I mean, my opinions come from some
1: experience, anyway. I would say so. I would say they're well, uh, well grounded in uh, in a lot, a lot of experience. We'll get to, but let's go there then. How did you, you know, where did you grow up, and how did you get into uh, the game of golf? And was it a was it a love from the get go, or or kind of take us to uh, how you ended up, you know, kind of taking the tour by storm very early in your twenties?
0: I grew up in Shreveport, Louisiana. I was playing every other sport and a good friend of my dad's gave him a set of golf clubs and said, you know, how's a good athlete. You ought to give him a set of golf clubs. He can play golf for life and uh, he can't play football and he can't play baseball and he can't play basketball for life. So, you know, I took the clubs out and I started hitting a few balls and really enjoyed it. And when I had time, I'd go play and fell more in love with the game. And as I realized you know i wasn't dependent on more players on the football team or the baseball team or the basketball team i was totally dependent on what i did that caused me to fall more in love with the game by the time i was 17 years old i'd quit all the other sports and just started playing golf which i do think team sports teaches kids a lot of things so i'm not i'm not opposed to uh, people playing team sports early on and and waiting to devote all their time to golf later. I think that can be a, still a good thing.
1: On that note, what do people learn, uh, golf? what can golfers learn from team sports? I hear that said a lot, but what, what do you think are, are the takeaways that people get to, to take from a team sport to a highly individual sport like golf?
0: Well, I think uh, one of the things is how to get along with other people, and and teamwork is, is good, because there's still teamwork, in even in golf, even as a professional golfer. I'll give you some examples. There's teamwork between you and your caddy, knowing when to talk and when not to talk. And there's also teamwork between you and your wife and you and your kids as you get up in years and you're playing the tour. I mean, you know, everybody has has a role to play. Even though you're the one that has to produce the results, there are people that are doing things behind the scenes that can either add to what you're doing take away from what you're doing
1: that's interesting and how would you I mean across your career in golf which spans many years have you seen kind of shifts and how that is has developed in the game of golf especially at the highest level
0: well yeah golf has changed dramatically I mean sometimes I wake up and think I don't even know what golf is today but that's a whole other subject line right there
1: but I'm happy to dive into that. I'm, I'm curious to, as to why, what 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 you mean by that. That you're not even sure what golf is these days.
0: Well, uh, there's no artistry in the game that much anymore. You know, it's uh, there's shots out there that don't mean as much uh, as they used to, uh, and there's people out there that are not learning the shots uh, that are part of the game, and we've got balls that don't spin, clubs that won't get it in the air and, uh, you know, everybody's trying low spin and high launch angle and hit it as far as you can, and we hit a bunch of pulls and pushes, but we don't hit hooks and draws. I'm talking good players now. It's face-driven, you know, path-driven, face-driven, and uh, no one knows anything about hitting a shot, let's say, 150-yard shot into a 25-mile-an-hour wind to a front pin over water because the ball doesn't spin and it doesn't upshoot. So, you want me to keep going because I can name you 10 different shots. No, that I can name 10 different shots that people don't know how to hit. You know, I just had a conversation with Fred Ridley the other day, and I told him, I said, you know, if we'd make the ball spin more, I said, there's an art and, and we used to admire a guy that could aim it down the left-hand side of the fairway and cut it back into the center of the fairway. And I said, we respected him, and we admired it, and it was exciting to watch a guy be able to do that, to have that much command over his golf swing. And I said, then on the other hand, it was also exciting when he did it and he didn't mean to because then you got to see how he handled trouble by the curvature of the ball. I said, we don't have that anymore. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm not against 125-mile-an-hour uh, club head speed and the ball going 350 yards. I said, let's just make it curve. I said, let's put some excitement back into the game. And that's my theory. You know, I mean, I don't mind the ball being as going as far as it is. That's fine. I mean, it's hurt the consumer for the ball to go that far. I can tell you that because the consumer has paid the price for all of this. You know, they spent billions of dollars changing all of the golf courses around. They're the ones that spend the billions of dollars buying five dollars and $600 drivers of pros. You know, they don't have to pay for any of this stuff.
1: <laughs> yeah the no,
0: consumer pays for all that.
1: No, yeah, you're you're preaching to the choir on, on some of these issues. I'm curious, if you can share what you can share about what uh, Mr. Ridley's reaction was to your points.
0: He understood. He understood. He you know, he called me about another thing and he was very nice to We were reminiscing. He was my agent actually when I first went on the tour.
1: Really? I never knew that.
0: So, yeah, so Fred and I go back a long, long ways and we were he called me and just wanted to talk about old times really and we ended up talking about you know golf in general and you know he's in one of the most powerful positions in my opinion of anybody in the game whatever Augusta does everybody else follows suit you know that carries a that's a heavy weight and you know I was telling him how proud I was of him you know he chose the legal side you know he became a lawyer and then ended up working his way up in the USGA all the way up to president now chairman of Augusta. I mean, he did quite well. He was U.S. Amateur champion a long time ago, 1975, I think. And uh, look where he's at
1: today. Mm-hmm. On that note about, you know, the golf ball and, and technology, I was watching a little bit of the highlights from the uh, 83 players coming down the stretch there. Do you remember what you had to hit in the 18?
0: Well, I drove it through the fairway on the right and uh, just trying to stay out of the water because I had to go under the trees. All I had to do was make bogey to win, so uh, I don't remember what I hit then. I really don't.
1: I think it was three iron, and now these days, these guys hit two iron wedge into it if the wind is help. The wind was hurting, but I, I think that kind of just speaks to the shots that uh, that that you were saying that aren't really required anymore. You mentioned a couple of the, you know, that you maybe had a few more. I want I, I, I do kind of want to nerd out some examples of. Shots, you feel like you had to learn how to execute under pressure that guys these days don't necessarily have to.
0: Okay, well, I'll give you another one real quick. When the ball spins a lot, you also have to worry about how far it's coming back. And you have to club up sometimes to try to keep the ball from spinning backwards so far. You don't ever see that sort of thing anymore in the game. You know, uh, grass has changed that a lot, but so has the fact that the ball doesn't spin anymore, too. So, you know, one of the biggest questions that I was ever asked when I was playing the tour was, how can I make the ball spin backwards? I mean, they didn't ask me how I could curve it. They wanted, everybody wanted to be able to make the ball spin backwards. You know, ball doesn't spin backwards anymore, hardly ever. And there's reasons for that. We've got different grooves in the club now. We've got different grass on the ground. And we've got a different spin ratio out of coming out of the ball. You know, I just I would love to see the art side of the game come make a uh, a comeback.
1: Well, you know, your career. Uh, let me ask it this way, actually. So, somebody like Tiger Woods, do you think that all of the technology progressions in the game, do you think that helped or hurt his career overall?
0: Well, let me tell you what I, I mean. I know Tiger pretty well.
1: He'd have been a superstar no matter
0: what the right. Uh, what the rules were because he burned inside to be the best version of Tiger Woods that he could be. And he never lost sight of that. And I mean, I have the utmost respect for him because he never got distracted from the big picture of being the best Tiger Woods could be. That's really one of his biggest accomplishments in the game. What I just said above everything else that he's done, Year after year after year, Tiger's Woods wanted to dominate. And that's hard to keep that sort of energy up and to fight the demands of being that kind of person, which he, you know, he did. But Tiger would have adjusted no matter what, and he would have excelled no matter what.
1: Yeah, I guess kind of where I was getting at with that is I, I felt like he was an artist, you know, and then the golf, a lot of things changed. And I think it helped bring a lot of people closer to him. And, and if, you know, things hadn't changed so much, he would have been able to separate himself even further.
0: Well, he is an artist, but his paintbrush would have been different. Yeah. And he and the outcome would have looked different. He'd have been a different kind of player, but he still been the best
1: player. Yeah. Oh, I definitely That's think... what I'm trying think, to say. Yeah, he definitely would have been the best no matter what. I just... I, I, I'm curious. I just... Fascinated to think of, you know, what what would have happened as far as if he was truly able, able to separate himself more. I just feel like it's, you know, technology has bunched people closer and together. But you, of course, I mean, kind of we're, we're jumping around here timeline wise, but you uh, had, of course, the famous duel uh, at the 2000 players with Tiger Woods. Can you kind of set the scene for us going into that day, especially? I mean, this is in the height of Tiger mania. Is your preparation for that final round any different, or was your mindset any different going into that last round than normal rounds of golf?
0: Well, obviously there was, you know, there was a lot more pressure on me at that time because of trying to hold him off than there would have been if there would have been somebody else in his place. So I felt the weight of the world because at the time, you know, people like Colin Montgomery were saying he was unbeatable almost. And I felt like golf needed someone to beat him, not because we didn't want him to win, it's because we wanted to prove that there were other good players that were capable of beating him, and you know, I was on a golf course that I knew that even though he was more powerful than I was, it was a point A to point B to point C type of golf course, and I was hitting it as good as I'd ever hit it in my life, and I knew that I could do that just as well as he could. He'd be doing it with different clubs, but we're still trying to hit it to the same place. So that was a place that I could beat him at. Let's say that. Mm -hmm.
1: That makes sense. A quick break here in the action to remind you about our friends at Herbal Active. And before you hit that fast forward button, do not do it. The hardest thing to find right now, hand sanitizer, hand sanitizing spray. Herbal Active is currently offering that. Go right to the homepage. The first thing you're going to see at U-R-B-A-L-A-C-T-I-V is a hand sanitizing spray, hand and surface sanitizing spray. You can get a three pack for $15. Where else in the world can you order that online? I don't know where, and that's not even what we're here to talk about. That is a bonus uh, for all the other things they offer. Please go to that website, herbalactive.com. Find out about their CBD products. We've talked about them for such a long period of time here, but I use them every morning and every night. I've been sleeping so much better ever since I put them in play. Three to four drops on the tongue, depending on how badly I need to sleep that night. Uh, It's an overall calming feeling, and it's noticeable for me when I don't use it. You know, I'll be up in the middle of the night and be like wondering why that happens, and uh, it's because I didn't use my Herbal Active. So you can uh, always use the promo code NLU20 for 20% off your order. And again, a three-pack uh, for $15 of hand and surface sanitizing spray. So please do check that out, NLU20 at HerbalActive.com, U-R-B-A-L-A-C-T-I-V. Let's get back to our podcast with Hal Sutton. What, and I've heard you kind of say this in the past. that you, you Did you feel slighted at all going into that last round or kind of some of the uh, questions you were receiving the night before? Did it feel like people had kind of almost written you off even though you were leading wire to wire at that point?
0: Yeah, it did. And, you know, I finally got angry. I mean, inside I was angry. I, and I finally said, you know, I might have bought into all these things that y'all were talking about here, except this morning when I was saying my prayers, I got up off my knees and I realized I wasn't praying to Tiger Woods. I was praying to God so that makes Tiger Woods a man just like me, so we'll go out there tomorrow and try to decide who who deserves this. That was out of frustration that I said that. I was trying to put it into perspective for them. And, you know, we see sensationalism all the time now in the media. I mean, the more we can sensationalize things, the better off it is, the better the ratings are and everything else. And we see that every day, especially right now. And we were seeing it then.
1: Well, I'm looking at those highlights too. I I was kind of, I'm like looking at it I'm like, wow, there are not, these bleachers aren't full. This is really bizarre. Why is that? And I didn't realize it was a Monday finish. Was Sunday completely wiped out or did you play some Sunday and it bleed into Monday? How did that unfold? And did that change uh, anything for you?
0: Yeah, well, we played 12 holes or 11 and a half holes and then the heavens opened up and it rained three and a half inches that night. So it was hard and fast up to that point. I had a three shot lead going into number 12 and he drove it in the rough and I drove it in the fairway and then the heavens opened up. We went back out and he actually hit the green and three putted. So I ended up having a four shot lead going into 13. And of course it was a different golf course at that point though, because you know, now I wouldn't get any of the role and some of my distance was dependent on the role and you know, he could carry it a long way. So it, it was my golf course the day before and it turned into his golf course mm-hmm. the next day
1: did anything change for you with his eagle on 16 i mean i i <laughs> watching that highlight he went for the tiger fist pump well before that ball went in the hole
0: well i mean i don't know how much you've read about it but i've told it a thousand times i had planned on that happening and you know that was the one place that i knew there could be a pivotal point in the round uh, because I knew I might not go for the green into, two, and I was certain that he would. And what that brought into play was I might make par, and he might make eagle. So I knew I had to get to 16 with a three-shot lead. If I got to 16 with a three-shot lead, then he had to play, even if that happened, he had to play 17, 18, the same way I did. Mm-hmm. So if, if I was prepared for it, then I wouldn't be shocked by it if I'm not prepared for it and I hadn't thought about it, well then that would have been a long walk from the 16th green to the 17th tee. Hmm. And so I started preparing myself for that on Sunday night.
1: Going to hit that shot on 17 with a one-shot lead over Tiger. Does having won the players and hit that shot under a different kind of pressure, you know, granted it was 17 years earlier, but you stuffed it on 17 on Sunday uh, in 1983 Does that help at all as you're standing over that shot where so many things could go wrong?
0: You know, it's interesting. Uh, I never had the tee on 17 all week in 2000, and everybody that hit the ball in front of me hit it in the water. And, you know, Tiger hit the shot on 17 in front of me because he made eagle. And honestly, he didn't hit it all that good. And it was right at the flag, but it was very iffy as to whether it was going to carry the water. And there wasn't a soul there that didn't think it was empty, iffy, and it landed in about six inches of deep rough, just over the pile. And you know that was the first shot that I saw hit in front of me that didn't splash off. <laughs> and my thoughts were never anything but hit it in the middle of the green. You know, make him beat you, Hal. Don't beat yourself. And and that was my whole motto. Starting on Sunday morning was you know I'm just. I'm going to play fairways and greens, fairways and greens, and I'm going to make him beat me. And I missed one fairway, and I missed one green in that round. I missed the eighth green, left of the green, and I missed the uh, 16th fairway when I drove it through the fairway. Hmm. So, I mean, you know, pretty much ball striking-wise, I played that round of golf about as solid as you could play it.
1: And, you know, the best is yet to come coming on 18 and it's, you know, everyone knows it for, of course, your call coming up, but I got to shout out two different things that on the replay stuck out to me. One, we call we call this tour sauce. Basically. It's kind of just any extracurricular activity after a shot or before a shot, after you hit that drive on 18, you barely watched it and you snagged that tee coming out of the ground. Did you not?
0: Yeah, I did. (laughs) Frankly, because I, you know, Every tour player, every really good player, you you don't need to see the outcome to know that you had accomplished your goal. And when I hit that shot, you know, face was square. I didn't need to get up look at it to see. I knew I'd hit it right down my line, and I'd hit it right in the center of the face. So, uh, you know, mission accomplished.
1: And then after the shot, and this is something we love to make fun of, is that professional golfers in their caddies have absolutely no coordination between good high fives and you and Freddie absolutely perfectly executed not one but two high fives as you're walking up to that green
0: <laughs> well you know my buddy Freddie was with me for 30 years you know and we Facetime yesterday just to say hello and see how each other's doing you know Uh, When you spend that kind of time together, you know, it's moments like that that you dream about being able to share together. And, uh, you know, Freddie deserved a lot. I mean, one of the things that Freddie started doing when we walked off the 17th green, which you didn't say anything about, was he started telling me, you got to drive it on this next hole. A lot of times I hit 3-wood on 18th. And I would hit a little bit longer club into the green, you know, and he said, you, you know, you need to have the last shot. We knew Tiger was going to hit a two-hour. And he said, you need to out-hit him because you need to be able to do what you need to do. So you're the best driver of the ball. You know you are how. you got to hit the driver. He was convincing me all the way over there, don't be afraid to hit that driver. Hit it. Freddie deserves a lot of credit, too, because he, you know, that's the teamwork that I was talking to you about earlier. Mm-hmm and the timing of the teamwork. And those sort of things are really, really important. And that's why you see really great players, when they get the caddy that they know is their partner, they keep them for a long time.
1: Yeah, how did your guys' you know, relationship start, and, and how, how in the world did you you know stick together for that long? It's not something you see even back then or, or in current uh, pro golf that guys are with the same caddy for that long.
0: Well, Freddie watched me whenever I was a high school player in Shreveport, you know, and then when I was playing in college, he'd follow me. He was a good player in Shreveport, and he'd walk around and follow me. And he used to tell me, he said, how one day are you going to make the tour? And he said, I'm going to caddy for you when you do. And, you know, you want somebody that cares that much, you know. And I was criticized early on because I took him out there, and he didn't know any of the golf courses or anything else. And, you know, a lot of the people said, you know, you need to hire a seasoned caddy that can help you in this process. And, you know, I thought completely different than that. I needed someone that cared about me more than knew something about the golf course. I needed to have support. So I, I didn't listen to what the vast majority... I guess I've never been someone that listened to the vast majority of what everybody thought.
1: It doesn't seem that way, yeah. and <laughs> uh, everything I've read in the past. Well, kind of flipping back towards... Uh, more towards the beginning of your career and your amateur career, everyone has a point where they have decided or they've learned or realized that they are good enough to be a professional player, at least the people that become professional players. When was that for you? Was it always obvious? And did you? what was kind of your amateur career like and your transition like to being a pro?
0: Well, you know, my senior year in college, I was college player of the year. I won seven tournaments my senior year in college. And then I won the North-South, the Northeast, the Western, the US amateur and the world amateur all in the same summer. So I guess after that summer I was pretty convinced I could make something to it on the tour. I
1: think so, yeah. And,
0: but my dad didn't want me to turn pro. My dad wanted me to remain an amateur play in tournaments as an amateur. So I went to work for my dad for six months. And I played a couple of professional events. I made the cuts, but didn't play very well and I it was easy for me to see that my competition skills were diminishing because I wasn't playing in enough competitions, and that I wasn't going to be able to play in enough competitions to continue to progress my game. That's the beautiful part about college golf. You know, it's discipline. You're playing in a lot of golf tournaments, you're getting better and you're progressing, and your skill sets are improving. And, you know, when you go to work and you're not playing in a golf tournament every day, and you're dependent on your own desire to go work on your game instead of someone saying you need to go work on your game, then it's hard to continue to progress your skill sets. So I walked in one day and told my dad, I said, hey, I, I can't do this. I'm not going to do this. It's a disgrace to my game. I've you know, tried to progress to be as good a player as I can be. So the only way I feel I can do that is to turn pro, which I did. And got my card the first time. Uh, through and uh, went on to be rookie of the year my first year and then player of the year my second year and then the whole different ball of wax started I was living up to all of my expectations and and but yet still people were pointing out all my flaws and things that I needed to improve on to be the best player in the world and all that sort of stuff and made me think about things that I never even dreamed I had to think about and then I started seeing articles written that I didn't hit it high enough to ever win at Augusta so stupid me you know I'm going to change my game to meet what a guy put a pencil thinks about me and you know I understand what Jordan Spieth is going through right now because he went from having to please himself to you know he accelerated everything that he did so fast that everybody's expectations they didn't know where his ceiling was at so they just kept pushing for as hard as they could and all of a sudden you know you get to the point here's what i did i thought well i can't please all these people so I'm, i'll go buy some cut horses and start riding horses which is what i did and pretty much left the game for about you know i played that was the worst part i'd have been better off if i'd have left but i played but had the excuse i'm doing other things i don't even want to pay attention to it and boy did i get bad during that stretch and, you know,
1: <laughs> it, that seems tough. like it happened quick, you know, I mean, from being player of the year in 83, you know, I just, you know, I've, I've read some quotes just with you saying like you kind of almost quit working on your game as of 84. Does that sound right?
0: No, 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 not 84. Okay. You no, know, I still won twice in 85, twice in 86. And, uh, but by the time 87, 88, and 89 came along, I was like, you know what, I'm going to do some other things. And I didn't work as hard on my golf game, you know. And uh, when I got off, instead of working on my game, I went to the farm. And and what happens in that, you know, you've made quite a bit of money and you don't have to play. (laughs) You don't have to work on your game. Uh, That's even more true in today's world than it was in those times. I mean, look at the money these guys are making now. Right. I mean, these guys are catching lightning in a bottle. Some of them catch lightning in a bottle and they're making, you know, a million, three to a million to two million in in one tournament. And one tournament doesn't make a career, but it might make you financially. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) So that's what I admired. That's good getting back to Tiger. That's his greatest accomplishment right there. He makes hundreds of millions of dollars and never loses sight of the big picture of being the best version of Tiger Woods as a golfer as he can be. Hmm. That's Uh, his greatest accomplishment.
1: That's really interesting. Uh, What is your, I guess... I always curious to pick guys brains on where they fall in the spectrum of love with the game. And you know, a lot of people, a lot of pros can get a little burned out on it and not necessarily love golf that much uh, at many different parts of their career can kind of ebb and flow. What is your, I guess in this time period and even today, kind of your relationship with love in the game, what kind of happiness that that golf has brought you in life?
0: Well, I love the game. I don't know that I realized how much I love the game until after I, you know, I've had a lot of uh, physical problems over the last six or seven years. I've had uh, three hip surgeries, one total reconstructive surgery, and then ended up having to have it replaced. And then I had another replacement. And then three months after I had that replaced, I had a heart attack. And then just this last year, I had my knee replaced, my left knee. So... I was a right-handed player, so the first problem I had was my left hip and then my left knee. So, you know, when you're driving hard into your left side, and if you can't get to your left side, then you're backing up through the shot, and that'll make you hate the game. I can tell you that right now. But I've kind of gotten my body back to where I can do some of the things that I used to be able to do. So I'm I'm rekindling the love affair that I used to have with it just because I can hit some decent shots now. And it, they're not glancing blows. Everybody backing up through the shot has got glancing blows going on, and that's never very fun.
1: Well, you've done well in your in the early '80s. You know, you've. I'm always curious too as how you know, how money related towards real life then compared to now. And you mentioned just how much how much crazier it is now. But did you consider, you know, the money you earned early in your career, was that a lot of money back then? And looking at, you know, the, the uh, con- conversion chart of inflation, it does seem that way, but it didn't feel that way in the early 80s.
0: Okay. Uh, I won the money list in uh, 1983 with $450,000. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't know, that that wasn't rich I can tell you that, I won the TPC and the PGA, the TPC was the first six digit check that the tour ever paid was $126,000 the PGA that year paid $100,000 you'd win over $4 million now if you won both those. Parts. Right, <laughs> and I won $226,000 now I'll tell you another piece of trivia, I won the first seven digit check that the tour ever paid too it was 17 years later at TPC. And it was a million eighty thousand when I beat Tiger. <laughs> so that's a piece of trivia. The first six-digit check, I won it, and the first seven-digit check,
1: I won. It. That's pretty sweet. How much did it? Uh, how much did it change your life? You know, to, to kind of get that money early, early on in, in in the '80s.
0: Well, I don't know that it changed my life that much because I didn't have enough money that I could quit. <laughs> right. You know, I think that was the beauty of those days. You know, you were forced into keeping things into perspective and keep the big picture in your mind uh you know by the time 86 had come along i had won quite a bit of money and, and i hadn't spent it all so i was you know i i could buy some horses and not go play golf if i didn't want to you know if you're hungry you make sure you do everything right and if you're not hungry then it doesn't really matter whether you make sure or not. And that's why I keep going back to that's Tiger Woods' greatest accomplishment. He played his entire golf career like he was hungry Mm -hmm. all the time. Yet, he was probably worth a billion dollars. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, I still say, you can sum up all of his great shots that he's hit in his lifetime, but his greatest accomplishment is waking up with the same desire all the time. Mm -hmm. Because I can tell you, many men, Have tried to do that and they have not gotten that accomplished.
1: Yeah, I've honestly never really even thought of it that way because I I just always felt I I think Tiger, I don't think he does it for anyone else, but I think he's also felt the he's whether he's felt it or not, he's had the burden. Like it was this has been put on him to be like, hey, you're the savior. Like you're going to, you got to go do all this. And, you know, it could have, we kind of take for granted that he's put, he's dedicated himself that much to it. It could have gone either way. You know, he could have got pushed away by all that, but. He never really had. I never really thought of it that way. That's really interesting. What did you guys were teammates on the '99 Ryder Cup team? Uh, I guess what was your kind of experience with Tiger like up to that point, and, and what was what was it like being on that team with him?
0: You know, I did. I knew Tiger from a distance. You know, I played a few rounds of golf with him, but I can't
1: say that
0: uh, I knew him by any means. You know, I mean, I think I was probably. I think when Tiger first came out there, and he had gotten so much media attention and everything else probably there was a lot of jealousy out there you know and and uncertainty and and all sorts of things like that and I think I'd I'd be lying if I didn't tell you that we all felt that to some degree I I tell you another time we felt that was when Annika was going to play at Colonial and the media attention that led up to that you know and is she really as good as everybody says she is or how does my game stack up to her game she's a woman and I'm a man you know there's anticipation for everybody in circumstances like that. You know, I one of the first things I went on and played, you know, I mean, I'm thinking that anybody she beats, you're going to see your name in the paper because they're going to tell everybody. That's exactly what happened after it was all said and done. Everybody she beat, they listed everybody. So there's times in sport where you have moments like that where everybody that's already playing the game doesn't know you know, and they're not, they don't want to tell you they don't know, but they're anticipating. Mm -hmm.
1: What was the, uh, on the anticipation note, what is the anticipation like going into 99 Ryder Cup week? You know, what is, you know, Payne Stewart had said, I think a couple weeks before that the European team should have been caddying for them. Uh, Some other bulletin board material was up there, but can you kind of put into perspective how confident was that team going into Brookline?
0: Well, we were very confident, but if you recall, that was also the team that there had been a lot of talk that uh, some of the guys on the team were talking about how much we should be paid to even go play.
1: Yeah, take us to that history. That, uh, the, there that was a history. lot of
0: controversy uh, going into that. you know, and Not every player on the team felt the same way that some of the other players did. Some of the guys hid behind and got some of the younger guys to fight their uh, their cause for them. And I'm not going to go into names. It doesn't make any difference anymore. But there was just a lot of outside noise going into that week. And Payne making the statement that he made, uh, you know, but the media had said virtually the same things, how the American team was was a much better team than the European team. They say that all the time, and yet we don't win <laughs> most of the time.
1: On the pay-for-play stuff, I, I want to kind of, you know, in the more conversations I have about it, the more I think about it, the more I'm like, gosh, it's – Kind of ridiculous that the players, you know, the PGA of America, the European Tour, makes so much money off the Ryder Cup and players don't get paid. But what do you remember about that time, kind of the conversations that were happening and how it how it ended up bubbling over to that year?
0: I, I, I can't recall exactly why it bubbled up into that year. But let me tell you my theory about getting paid. I mean, they do give the players money to give to charities. I don't know what the amount is anymore, but that particular year it was $200,000. Every player got $200,000 to give to the charities of their choices. And, you know, in my opinion, I was taught by a PGA professional early on in my life. His name was Ed Peck. He was a little guy at a nine-hole golf course that just went to work every day and battled country club golf. That's really what he did. So, I felt like whenever I finally made a Ryder Cup team, that I was actually playing for him. And You know, the PGA of America represents all of those guys, all 28,000 people of them. So I didn't have any hard feelings because I played for a week in the greatest event in the game. I was actually good enough to play in the greatest event in the game, asked to do it. Oh, by the way, you're just going to give me $200,000 to give to charity. You're going to give me $50,000 worth of clothes, and we're going to go to all these great Parties, they're not really parties, they're really uh, dinners of recognition. And I'm going to get a stage to showcase my talent to the rest of the world in the, the most fierce competition that we know in the game of golf. Oh, really? I'm upset about being able to do that. I just see, I'm not on that page. Mm-hmm. And by the way, everybody that does really well in those events, they do quite well after the fact in other areas like in endorsements and other things. So you get paid it's just indirectly. Yeah,
1: that all makes sense to me. I you know, I, I think that if I remember right, the charitable element came from that year. Like that was the year that started basically because of some of the noise that was drum up. Does that sound right? That's exactly
0: right. Yeah. It was really unfortunate. And I think the best part about it all is there was some
1: dissension
0: among some of the players on that team that others were thinking that it should be that way getting paid and others didn't feel that way at all. So there was almost like two different teams on that team. And to be able to come together, we all came together on that Saturday night and you could tell that everybody was on the same page when we left the room that night. So finally on Saturday night, the team that we were all hopeful were going to get there at the beginning of the week actually got there. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. My Maybe the most important question I can ask about the 99 Ryder Cup is when did you guys become aware of what shirts you would be wearing on that Sunday?
0: Oh, we knew it at the beginning of the week. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what was the, co- what but, was the conversation know, like? For everybody that didn't expect to be paid that week, they understood that that was every winning Ryder Cup teams picture on that shirt, so the meaning of the shirt meant more than the looks of the shirt.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It didn't bother me at all.
1: So. <laughs> They're great to look back at and and laugh about. But...
0: Uh, let me let me tell you this: there they've made a lot of money in charity. You know, every one of us probably gave that to a charity, and they auctioned it off for someone, and it all brought big money to everybody. So, you know, y'all laugh about them and everything else, but we remember that shirt. Yes. So tell me what, tell me what shirts the last uh, the Ryder Cup team was wearing in Louisville the last day. Can uh, you
1: remember it? No, not a chance. Not, no, you can't. No, you that can't. One. <laughs> no.
0: So, you know, I can give you the case on the other side why that was a really good thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, I I agree. There was definitely a brand behind it, and I saw people at Hazeltine. There was three fans in the front row of one of the holes and they had the shirts. I think they were replicas of it, but it's, it's, it's instantly recognizable. Um, so what going into that Sunday, you know, obviously Ben Crenshaw has the, the press conference quote, he says, I've got a good feeling about this. Did that truly represent kind of how that room felt going into, into Sunday down four points?
0: Yeah, it did. I mean, everybody uh, on Saturday night, when we all left the, uh, meeting that we had, I mean, I think everybody in the room felt like we had a really good chance. We'd stacked it. Everybody that was playing well was out the first six matches, and we felt like we could get us back to even, if not ahead, which we did. We got ahead. We won the first six matches going out, and I won them all big, too, by the way. That was the most electric day that I've ever seen, ever in golf in my career. I mean, I have never heard crowds like I heard that day. And I'll look back and I'm sure everybody that was on that team will look back and say never heard anything like that.
1: Yeah, I mean I've never seen anything like it and hearing just hearing guys talk about it it's the the most excited they get to talk about it but how did you end up going out second? Is that something you asked for? I mean you were obviously playing well going into that Sunday. Uh, you know, wh- how did you end up at the top of the lineup?
0: Ben said he wanted to put Tom and I out first. We were both playing really well. We were both older on the team. I think he thought we were on solid footing, so to speak. You know, I'll never forget Tom and I were getting stretched before we went out, and uh, I had played every match. I played all four matches to that point. I, I won't ever forget how stiff I was while they were trying to stretch me out. And I said, "Man, I hope I can. They can somehow stretch me out enough that I can get a complete backswing right now." Oh uh, it was it was that was a long week.
1: Well, what was the after that amazing comeback in that crazy atmosphere what was the celebration like that uh, that Sunday night?
0: Well we were up all night long you know just talking and reminiscing and of course you know that was really the last night that I was ever with Payne. You know he was killed in the in the plane crash about 30 days later and what I really remember about that night is sitting and talking to Payne. And, uh, I can't really recall a whole lot more about it. You know, I guess it's because that I kept going over in my mind the last time that I had spent with pain, I kind of forgot about all the Ryder Cup
1: celebration. Mm-hmm. Kind of everything that happened after, you know, that Sunday of 99, it, it seemed like the Europeans didn't take it very well with all the things that happened either, you know, for better, you know, deservedly or so. And it felt like that kind of even bled over all the way into your captaincy in 2004, kind of the general census consensus from the European team as to how you know the U.S. had treated the Ryder Cup. Or I guess coming back to U.S. soil in 2004, I don't know if they were fearing kind of something similar happening, but it seemed like there was fireworks and that was kind of brewing that week or in the weeks leading up to uh, Oakland Hills in 04 that you were captain of. Does that sound right?
0: Listen, I was on four Ryder Cup teams, should have been on five. I really made the team in 83, and I wasn't a Class A pro, so I couldn't play, and they changed the rules. So John Daly benefited from the fact that I had done that before. The truth of the matter is there's always controversy leading into the Ryder Cup. And the pressure that the, every player feels, It's you know, the Ryder Cup is the biggest event in golf. I guess there's always been controversy, you know, and anything that's not even meant to be made out to be controversial ends up being controversial in many ways.
1: Going to 04, and I promise I'm not going to where everyone defaults uh, with 04, Um, because I I think everyone does just go straight to the Tiger Phil thing, but that team lost by nine. So I don't think think that 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 pairing necessarily cost the U.S. the Ryder Cup. And looking at that time period in Ryder Cup history, that the following, you know, two years later in oh in six, they also, the team also lost by a huge margin. So I want to know going into that week, did you feel like there was a big talent gap or an issue? Like within your team, did you feel like you guys maybe were potentially in trouble even before the week began?
0: I did. Yes, I did. But you don't say that because you don't. Right. I mean, you want everybody to stay positive, you know, but we weren't playing very well at that time. We had a lot of great guys on the team. Everybody tried hard, you know. Everybody criticized the fact that I put Tiger and Field together and I was trying to help the game of golf as much as anything else, you know. And I guess I was way ahead of my time because then they paid everybody $10 million to do it after the fact. (laughs) So if they had done well together and became really friends, golf won then. Because what was their relationship
1: like at at that point?
0: I don't think it was that good. I think, honestly, I think I mean, I think I could say this, and this not be controversial. I think Phil was jealous of Tiger and wanted to prove that he was a better player. I don't think Phil had anything going that Tiger was jealous of. And I think, you know, I was hoping that they became friendly with one another. You know, they're both magnificent players. Two leading money winners of all time, aren't they? Mm -hmm. And different style of play. I would say that Tiger's a little more calculated. I would say he's a calculated gunslinger, and I would say Phil is just a gunslinger.
1: That sounds about right, yeah. So
0: I knew these people a lot better than anybody else did making the decision, basically. Yeah. And I made the decision that I thought was best for the team and best for golf. And didn't work out. And they got beat on the 17th hole, the first. Couldn't go away from it because uh, Montgomery and uh, Padraig Harrington Made like ten birdies in the first seventeen holes against them. Okay, well, you ran into a buzzsaw. That's not going to happen two times in a row. So I didn't go away from it, and I dealt with things that week I never dreamed I was going to have to deal with. That's just the Ryder Cup for you.
1: Like what? What are some examples of things you didn't couldn't dream you uh, would have to deal with?
0: Uh, we won't go into all that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's for part two. Yeah, just. Uh, that's- just looking we'll at We'll never hear that part. No,
0: <laughs> no, no, we'll never hear that part.
1: Maybe offline. This is the part where I, I rushed to finish the recording so you can tell me all the secrets offline. But yeah, looking back at it, I, got, I think people remember it differently. I mean, they lost the opening match two and one, like you said, on the 17th, and then lost one up to Darren Clark and Lee Westwood in the afternoon. It was just overall, the team was down six and a half, one and a half. And I, I just, you know, I, I love looking at those 04 and 06 teams and seeing. You know, I, no offense to any of the players on there, but just thinking like, wow, that was a very, very different time in American golf history. And it seems like the depth for the American players is so much deeper now, yet we still haven't seen the tides turn in the Ryder Cup. And I, I'm just, as somebody that's been in, around this event for so many years and decades, kind of what, what does all your experience tell you about why Europe has just had so much more success over the last 30 years or so?
0: Hunger. Hunger. Last week in September, whenever it is, uh, the Americans have played all year long, and their pockets are full, especially the 12 guys that are on that team. That's why I admire Tiger so much, because he's never allows the big picture to be forgotten. You know, although Tiger's record is not all that great in the Ryder Cup, not compared to the kind of player he is, which... You know, I just don't think that we'd go in there. We were hungry in 99 the last round because we'd gotten embarrassed so bad and everybody had said we were so good. So that made us hungry because otherwise we were going to be the biggest disappointment ever in the history of the game yeah. <laughs> to get beat that bad. And, you know, sometimes you're hungry because you make yourself that way and sometimes you're hungry just because uh, that's your makeup.
1: The the vibe I get from a lot of past captains is it's very mixed on what the, uh, their overall experience as a captain, whether they recommend it, whether it was worth it. What what can you speak of to that in, in your mind? I know you kind of you had a I guess w- describe your relationship with the game of golf shortly in the years after your captaincy as well.
0: I quit completely. Forty six years old. I was fully eligible all the way till I went to the Champions Tour, and I completely quit the game after that point. I did not play 20 rounds of golf in five years after that.
1: And why is that? Because I was
0: so disappointed in the effort that I put into it and how I was the scapegoat for everybody. I was the fault, and I never hit a shot. And, you know, I did everything. I brought Jackie Burke in there, who was certainly not current in the game, and I brought him in because I thought he was the most knowledgeable person in the game left, and I wanted the rest of the players to know him. I brought Steve Jones into it as my assistant captain, who was not current either because he'd had elbow problems, but he won the U.S. Open at Oakland Hills. You know, I had done a lot of things leading up to that that I thought were recognizing people in the game and of the game and for the game. I was hurt. I was bitter after that. My dad begged me not to do it. He said, Hal, you're still a good player. You've got no business doing that. And I didn't listen to him. And I said, how many people would ever turn their back if asked to be a captain of the Ryder Cup team? That's what I played for my whole life. But I was bitter. So I would fit into the category of, if they asked me again, "Mm, if I had the knowledge I have now, I probably wouldn't do it. Mm
1: If I were to describe it in from an amateur perspective, an outside perspective, it seems like it is both an honor and a burden. Does that sound fair? That would be an
0: absolute fair statement because you give up, you sacrifice your own game for that.
1: Yeah, that's why I find it so, you know, Tiger decided to do it for the President's Cup as a playing, you know, ended up becoming a, play, a playing captain, but... The people that, how do you decide when you're transitioning into captaincy role is a game that you're going to play forever. And, you know, it's, it's a, it's just so weird to me, kind of seeing guys try to balance. Like I know Jack Nicholas was captain of the 83 team and he went in, out and won the masters two and a half years after that. Like he wasn't, he was far from done playing. It just seems like a very stressful thing to add to a, a playing career, a, a golf playing career is supposed to last almost forever, you know, and it's a very stressful thing to variable to throw in the mix.
0: Yes, it is. Some people are ready for it and can manage it, and others can't. You know, what they've ended up doing is they've ended up having more assistant captains because that takes a lot of the duties off of the captain. And I think that was a great idea because there's just a lot going on. It's a big moving target. And, you know, it's a big event, biggest event, the biggest. What? Uh, what 1,500 people in the media center. There's no other event in the world that there's 1,500 people in the media center. Yeah, not even a Super Bowl.
1: They all need something to write about, and the easiest things to write about are the decisions that get made, and not necessarily the play of the uh, players. That sound right? That's exactly right. Yeah. What uh, if you had advice for future U.S. captains? What would your advice be?
0: Uh, I I have no idea what I would (laughs) tell them. To be honest with you, I it's a it's. The outcome won't necessarily be good or bad because of a decision you make. That's what I'll say. Yep. And you better be prepared for that. So you can't outsmart the facts.
1: <laughs> yep. That's what I've always said. It's as captain, you've got to press a lot of buttons and you've no idea what the outcome of those buttons is going to be. It, it can be kind of random as to what works and what doesn't and you're going to get judged on how the success of those buttons you pushed. And it's both art and science. And I don't even know what the part of the equation, each, each, uh, each part of those plays. It's just a complete, complete, uh, nightmare. If you ask me.
0: Well, and and honestly, that may be the reason why the event is so big. Yeah. It could be the reason why the event is so big and you know, there's just so much mystery to it. And, You know, it's not choosing the best player. It's choosing the best marriage in terms of two players playing together, who can get along the best and who can complement each other the best. That's not always obvious. Yeah.
1: Before we let you go here, I, I, I'm sure you're asked about Be the Right Club today on a near daily basis, but I'm curious, did you ever try to trademark it? Did you ever try to own that phrase? It's uh, It goes it goes with you so well. I'm just curious if you had any uh, official relationship with the phrase.
0: Yeah, I did trademark it. You know, I never figured out what to do with it. Really, you know, a long time ago, the head guy from NBC Sports asked me if I'd ever done anything with it. And I said, I don't know what you mean by do something with it. He said, well, you know... Uh, Pat Riley sold three peat to the MBA for a bunch of money and I said, So what do you want me to do? Sell coffee mugs with or barbecue sauce with you know, be the right club today, T shirts. I don't really know, you know, I've never really figured out what to do with it. And, you know, in my mind, uh, as I've gone on, it was something that it was just a moment of passion that I used it. I mean I, I had never said it before in my life. And really the <laughs> truth is the ball was in the air and I just didn't want to be tricked. I knew I'd hit it just right. and It was going to go the distance, and it was right at the flag. So just don't trick me. That's what I'm really saying. And after the fact, I thought, you know, everybody owns that. To some degree, it was just a moment we'll all remember. And I especially remember. So does Freddie. We lived it. And I was as close to it as anybody, you know, because I did it.
1: I was a extremely impressionable 13 year old during that time period. And I can't tell you how many times we went and out and yelled that whenever it's, it's it, everyone only uses it on the exact, this exact shot, which is a shot that you hit well and it's perfectly online and you just start thinking, I hope I guessed the right yardage and everyone still uses it. And I absolutely yeah. love it. It's great. So we're going to let you go. Um, I appreciate you spending an hour with us telling stories and your perspective is greatly appreciated. So, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, and uh, hope to do it again sometime. And, and let me know if you have any questions about starting your own. we will happy to give you all the advice you need. All right. I appreciate it. Uh, all right. Take care, Take Hal. Care. Thanks. Cheers. Uh-huh. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Johnny, yes. yeah, I mean,
0: that's better than most. How about him? That
1: is better than most. Better than most!